you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. So check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. know why didn't know at the time he'd never been a person I'd thought of as a comforter or a consoler it wasn't even someone I trusted but something in me drew me right to him so I slammed into him facing his jacket expecting what any 10 year old would expect a hug some consolation some comfort I don't think he moved. I don't even think he said anything. Of course, it's all a little fuzzy being almost 30 years ago, but all I remember was him standing there, hands folded, stoic look on his face, eyes straight ahead. And right there I learned that what I was doing in that moment wasn't okay. He didn't say it to me. Of course, We now know as adults that there is no way of knowing just how significant some of the experiences we had as kids would be to our formation. If you're anything like me, you think about that fact whenever you have those difficult moments with your children. (laughs) Oh man, (laughs) wonder what scar this just created. But that was the lesson I felt. So, as he put it to me a lot in my childhood, I I dried it up. Stopped crying. Tried to ignore the feelings and the embarrassment that started to follow, since, of course, it seemed to me that I was in the wrong. It wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. At 10, I wanted to be a man. It was obvious that this was what a man was supposed to do with sadness and pain. I carried that worldly understanding with me for a long time. Even after becoming a believer in college, when I was a little bit closer to being a man, still fairly far away, I largely stayed away from the man of sorrows that we sang about this morning. The one who wept and grieved was outwardly joyful, who shared all aspects of life with people, who was transparent, and who was completely dependent on his father. And as a result, I found little comfort in God as a father. My view of a father was provider, authority figure, a guy I had to prove myself to. It's part of the reason I veered away from spirituality and dove so heavily into theological study in my early years as a Christian. Mark Driscoll was right, at least about me, at least in part. I was the young reformed guy chasing after dead guys because of my daddy issues. Don't get me wrong, I still love theology and spending time with books and heady discussion as a follower of Christ. But looking back, I was also using it as a barrier. 
against having to deal with the things going on inside me. I use it as an excuse not to be very good at prayer. A nice cushion to keep people at arm's length. Of course, I still turn elsewhere in distress a lot of the time. If not books, movies, and TV. If not those, the news. Great place to distract yourself. If not the news, mindlessly scrolling on my phone. If not that slew of other things that help me avoid my problems in favor of that temporary comfort it gives me. But what we see in biblical narratives, in the Psalms, in the epistles, in the accounts of the earthly minister ministry of Christ, is that there is only one place we can find that comfort we're seeking. Here in chapter 17, we get the most detailed, intimate moment with Christ our Savior and God our Father in all of Scripture. It's what's referred to commonly as the high priestly prayer. It's been referred to as the holy of holies of sacred Scripture. One of my favorite preachers, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, has a 700-page book compiled of his sermons just on this chapter. 200 of those pages, which were on these first five verses. 13 sermons in total. One of the most significant figures of the Reformation, Philip Melanchthon, said of it, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or on earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than this prayer offered up by the Son of God Himself. So no pressure preparing a sermon on it. And as we start to walk through this chapter today, we get an intimate look at the depth of God's desires in the work of Christ. And we'll focus on three things Christ brings our attention to in the first five verses. One, he shows us where to turn as his disciples. Two, he lays out his desires for us as believers. And finally, he'll point us to the center of our life as the body. First, we see where to turn as disciples. Verse 1 again, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. The hour has come. Take a rewind back to Cana, the first miracle, water into wine. My hour has not yet come. Here it is. John's been leading up to this hour for quite a while now. Quite a while in our sermon series as well. Because, you know, it happens. Christ's life on earth has been aimed at this hour for 33 years. All of Scripture, all of creation has been moving toward this hour. Every life in the history of existence, existence itself is dependent on this hour. This is the hour that God brings all glory upon Himself. 
to pay the debt for all sin that had been committed and ever will be committed by his followers. The collective burden of all sin of the church body, past, present, and future, is about to be taken on by God in the flesh. And he will suffer punishment in a way that no one ever has, nor ever will again. And what does he do? Right here, he turns to his father, as he does repeatedly throughout his ministry. Now circle back a little. Can anyone relate to my story about an earthly father? Obviously not the specifics per se. But the broken and imperfect snapshot of an earthly father. Of course you can. In one way or another, because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, fathers included, So whether we had an absent father, an abusive father, a really awesome father, or anything in between, our concept of father is marred. But just like me in that story, we all have something in us that draws us to our father. We're wired to seek comfort in our father. And regardless of how successful our earthly fathers are in providing that comfort, that pull is not wrong. It was put there by our Heavenly Father, who does it perfectly. The Father that Christ is communing with right now is our perfect comfort as well. He's the very definition of love. He's the Father that can be turned to in distress. He's the Father that is always there for Christ, who is comfort and rest for our Savior, who is worthy of the Great Shepherd's complete dependence. And if Jesus Christ, a perfect and blameless member of the Triune God, seeks this communion in prayer, seeks to work out a full dependence on His Father to accomplish the task before him, how much more should I seek him? How often should I turn to him? How much more do we need to fall on our faces in prayer? As disciples called to make disciples, how much more do we need to point to the word and to prayer and to our Father as worthy to be depended upon? Now that Christ has shown us to turn to the Father, he shows us the desires of his heart. That all the Father has given him, every one of his followers will receive eternal life. Verses 2 and 3. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He desires for us to know him. The reason he gives his life to pay the penalty of sin, the reason he gave us his word, the reason he gifted us the Holy Spirit is so that we may know him. Now, this isn't like knowing the career QB rating of Patrick Mahomes type of knowing him. It's not how you know your work buddies or your neighbors 
or even how we know our close friends. It wasn't accidental that the analogy of a wedding, Christ the groom and church the bride, is used so frequently in Scripture. We're called to and gifted with the opportunity to know him in a way comparable to the way we know our spouse. In a marriage, you get to know just about everything about the other person. You even learn a great deal more about yourself than you had before. The paradox of two becoming one will do that. And it doesn't just stop after a little while. You know, you're not just married for a couple years and got it all figured out. It's why we don't just hear the truth of the gospel preached once and we're all set. It's why we don't just pray a prayer once and we're good to go. We pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. We're faithful in prayer, Romans 12.12. 12. We approach every situation by prayer and petition, Philippians 4.6. We devote ourselves to prayer, Colossians 4.2. It's why this book is not like Catcher in the Rye, Great Gatsby, Harry Potter. Read it once, you got it. Man, that was a good book. Now let's move on to the next one. It's the living, breathing Word of God that continually transforms us. It's why we don't just meet people in this room when they come here for the first time, find out the pertinent stats, and say hi every Sunday. We engage with the other members of the bride. We do life with them. We grow to know and love one another. We become family. It's ongoing. It's not a one-and-done thing. And through all this, our relationship and knowledge of God doesn't stand still. It grows stronger and more intimate. Or it grows weaker and more distant. The former is Christ's prayer for us. That we would know Him. That through His sacrifice, through His Word, through communion with Him, through the body of Christ, we would not just merely be introduced to Him, but that we would truly know Him and receive eternal life. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I mentioned earlier, puts it this way, The man who has received the gift of eternal life knows God. It's not only that he knows things about God, It's not even that he believes certain things concerning God. It's beyond that. He knows God. You cannot read the Gospels and their accounts of the life of our Lord without seeing that this was clearly the fundamental and the basic thing in his life on earth as man. He knew God. He keeps on saying it. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. Matthew eleven twenty five and 26. He says, 
Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son. Matthew eleven twenty seven. God was not some stranger in the far distance. No. He knew him with an intimacy and frankness which enabled him always to come into his presence. He seemed to be longing to be there at all times. And all that is something which is offered to the Christian. He's meant to know God, by which I mean that God becomes real to him. God is not merely an intellectual concept to the man who has eternal life. He becomes an actuality and a reality. He really does know God, and he knows what it is to realize the presence of God. And through that knowledge of him, he brings us to the focal point of it all. The center of the entirety of creation. Fall, redemption, restoration. The story that's been unfolding since before the beginning of time. Takes us to verse 4 and 5. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That God be glorified. That in this work that he's about to finish, Christ, the Son of God, the Father, be glorified. And not with some new glory that he has yet to receive, but with the glory that he has had together in the Trinity even before creation. Anyone remember the answer to the first question of the Westminster Catechism? What is the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There it is. Get used to it. I'm going to say it every time. How can we do that? We glorify God by knowing Him. We enjoy Him forever by knowing Him. God's desire from verses 2 and 3 is perfectly inseparable from His desire in verses 4 and 5. Our knowledge of him and our gift of eternal life gives him glory. And it's through his glory that we are able to know him and receive the gift of eternal life. And again, if Christ is praying for his work to be accomplished, is praying for his glory to be had, how much more do we need to pray for God's purposes to be accomplished and his glory to be had in our everyday lives? Not just when we come in here. Not just these corporate prayers which are awesome and necessary and wonderful. That's not it. Without ceasing. It's not just hyperbole. We're to pray. We're to come in the presence of God continually in our lives. Just as Christ did. If Christ is praying that we grow to know him, how much time should we be spending in prayer for the same thing? If Christ is making himself, his mission, his desires fully dependent on his relationship with his Father, how much more should our life reflect dependence on our Heavenly Father? Christianity is not a hobby. 
If you treat it like a hobby, you need to get a better hobby. This is just something you do once a week. You picked a really lame thing. It's not a decision or a prayer made once so we can continue on living the way we always were. It's not just a title we obtain because we walk the aisle and say a prayer. It's a call to follow Christ. In every practical way you can imagine, it's a call to follow Christ. A call to intimately know Him. It's a call to die continually to ourselves and be completely dependent on our Father. Again, it's not hyperbole. Called to die daily. Die to our comfortable, natural inclinations. Die to what we think we want and desire. Die to ourselves. Pastor Kent Hughes sums it up well here. First, knowing Christ involves knowing something about Him. This truth is terribly appropriate today. It's doubtful that even during the Dark Ages, there was as much ignorance in the English-speaking world as there is today regarding the Bible and the person of Christ. Hosea said it in his day, that his people were destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Paul spoke of his own people as alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Liberal theology's de-emphasis on Bible study has left many people who say they believe the Bible ignorant of its contents and insulated from an encounter with the Christ it reveals. From ground level, believers are the world's best hope of seeing the glory of God. Jesus made the Father's glory comprehensible. And we are to do so as well. We must be people of the Word. Our most accurate source of knowledge about Christ. We must meditate on the cross because it is the clearest demonstration of the love of the Father. We must spend time with those who know Him so that their knowledge will pass on to us. In doing these things, we will experience the answers to our Savior's prayer for us. In closing, this is not something we put in the easy category. It's not picking up a title and some morals. It's not making a once and for all decision. It's a literal call to die to ourselves every day. And to turn to Him. To die to the desires of our hearts. To die to the trappings of the world. To continually spend time in the Word and with God's people. Who are also sinners. Spoiler alert. Which is going to make it all difficult. Spending time with fellow sinners who probably sin in different ways that you do that drive you a little insane 
It's part of it. If it wasn't, it would be easy. Why do you think we have so many things in common with her, with our friends growing up as kids? Just a couple things that make it easier, make relationship easier. As followers of Christ, that's not our goal. And we can't do it perfectly. We can't expect others to do it perfectly either. We can't expect our pastors to always make all of the right shepherding decisions. Or our community groups to always be what we need them to be, want them to be. With folks in our counseling ministry to be able to throw some advice at us and everything is just going to get all better. can't expect everyone we minister to, everyone that we witness to, to just drop everything on a dime and start showing up every Sunday. We can't expect God's plan for our lives and our homes and our church to look how we want it to. We can't recoil when those things inevitably happen. We need to strive together. We need to be in community with one another. We need to be getting closer to each other, closer to those God has put in our lives who need Him just as much as we do. We need to be getting closer to His Word, closer to our Father in prayer and communion. This is Christ's prayer for us. This is why we're here. Not as a pastime. Not as something to check off a list but to know God, to glorify Him, and to enjoy Him forever.